Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. One of the interesting things that has happened in our culture in the past 20 years, and particularly at an accelerating rate in the past five years, is a complete shift in the attitudes of people coming through college and early in their careers about what their main life goals are. Back in the 60s, it used to be that most people said that their goal was to have a meaningful philosophy of life and to make a difference. But something has been gaining momentum every year since then, which is the goal of making lots of money. And now the goal of making lots of money, particularly for people under the age of 40, is almost double any other goal. And the reason for that, lest we think these people are just greedy materialists, is that they have been told from a young age that if you study hard, you'll do well in school and you'll get into a good college and then you'll get a good job and then you'll make lots of money and then you will be happy. But the sad thing is that that is a lie and that people do all of these things and then they discover that they are not happy. And one of the worst aspects of this that has come out in the past few years and it's developed its own name is the idea of hustle culture. And hustle culture basically means that you've got to be hustling all the time about your job, that your job is the center and the focus of your life and that all that your energy can do needs to go into your job. You need to be available 24-7, you need to be grinding it out, you need to put aside friendships, hobbies, all these other things, because the idea is that if you really live into hustle culture and you do all that for some unspecified period, usually longer than 10 years, then suddenly you will burst out on the other side of it and you'll have lots of money and you'll be happy. But the problem with that is it doesn't work. And Part of the issue is that according to a survey that Deloitte just did recently, 77% of people in the U.S. workforce right now have experienced or are experiencing serious burnout, that they find themselves unmotivated, in despair, and hopeless. And the sad thing about this is nearly half those people have left jobs that they grounded out in because they were so miserable that they couldn't take it anymore. But the great good news that's in today's gospel is that Jesus offers us the antidote to the poison of hustle culture. He invites all who are weary, stressed, and burdened to come to him and rest. And we're gonna unpack a little bit about what that means this morning. So first, we're going to look a little bit at the context of where Jesus says this, and then we're going to look at three key questions. The first is, who is Jesus inviting to come to him? Second, what is this rest to which he's inviting people? And thirdly, what is this yoke that he talks about, and what does it have to do with this rest? So the first context back in Matthew chapter 11, which is in your leaflet, you'll notice 
Um, Matthew 11 starts out with Jesus instructing his disciples and teaching, and while he's doing that, messengers come from John the Baptist, and they say, are you the one who was to come, or should we look for another? I.e., are you the Messiah, the promised Son of God, or do we need to wait for someone else? And you might think, why in the world is John asking this question? And the reason is that throughout a lot of Judaism in this period, there was the idea that when the Messiah came, when the Son of God came, he was going to be a military political hero who was going to throw off the yoke of Roman bondage and was going to establish Israel and Judea as a great nation state that would rule the world. And if that was what Jesus was supposed to be doing, he hadn't made very much progress. But the fact of the matter is that that is not the kind of Messiah that the Scriptures teach about. And Jesus sends word back to John saying, go and tell John what you see, that the blind receive their sight, the deaf hear, the lame are healed, and the poor have good news preached to them, which is a fulfillment of the prophecy about the Messiah in Isaiah. And right after that, Jesus then talks about what his role is, and he thanks God that these things have been hidden from the wise and revealed to those who are like little children. And he says that everything has been revealed to them through Jesus, who is the one who can reveal everything about who God is. So when he says these things, he's talking about who he is, his mission, what it means that the Son of God has come. And he says everything has been handed over to him. Uh, no one comes to the Father except through the Son. And this is a reminder to us that God is revealed fully only in Jesus Christ, and that every inquiry about the truth of Christianity must begin with the person of Jesus. And then right after that comes this beautiful invitation that we hear in our communion service and the comfortable words Sunday after Sunday, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then the rest of that passage, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is a beautiful invitation. And so the first question is, who is it that Jesus is inviting to come to him? Because at the time that Jesus was preaching in the first century, only certain people were thought of as being worthy to come to God. Only the people that kept the law, only the people that the Pharisees classified as righteous were invited to come, and people who were not were not even permitted to come into the synagogue. Tax collectors, prostitutes, Gentiles, all of those people were forbidden by law and rule from coming in, and then there were a whole host of other people who had been so scorned and looked down upon that they would never have come because they felt unworthy. But Jesus' invitation is marvelous. It is a broad invitation because it is an invitation to everyone to come exactly as you are, not having to earn your way or to clean up or take a bath or try to stop doing that particular thing, but to just come to Jesus 
as you are. As the old hymn says that we sang a few weeks ago, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. The other thing that's beautiful about this invitation is an invitation for those who are burdened, those who are burdened by sin, those who are burdened by stress, those who feel lonely, cast out, rejected, afraid, those who feel unworthy, who have messed up, who have had the promise of something wonderful and have chosen the wrong path and are in the depths of despair, those who have been hurt, those who have been judged and have been left behind. The invitation is to all to come to Jesus who's waiting with open arms for us to come to him. And we are invited to come to not only learn about Jesus, but to know him, to walk with him, to be with him, to be in relationship with him, to see reality and the whole world no longer from the perspective of this world and the media and hustle culture, but to see from his perspective, to move from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom that God ordained, where goodness and truth and beauty and joy and love are the things of this kingdom that surround us, which are found in Jesus. So we are all invited, and it is a beautiful invitation, and we are invited to come and rest. Which brings us to the second question, what is this rest to which Jesus is inviting people? Now we live in a culture that doesn't really understand rest very well at all. Most cultures, even Charleston when I was growing up, understood about rest. Businesses used to close in the middle of the day. People would go home and have dinner in the middle of the day and maybe take a nap before they would go back to work in the afternoon. And there was a rhythm and sense of rest that went with that. And Sundays, everything was closed and there was a rhythm of rest that went with that. But our understanding of rest today mostly is that we just stop doing anything. We just think that rest and idleness are the same thing. But they are not. And in scripture, rest is a profound theological word. And the word that's in the Greek here today is a really interesting word that's anapauso or anapausis. And what it means is not stopping of activity in and of itself, but it is more of a rest or refreshment or inner tranquility while performing and in the midst of necessary labor. It is much like that word that we see in that show, Parks and Recreation, or when you see the City of Charleston Recreation Department. We don't think about the roots of that word anymore. It is literally re-creation. It is to stop, to go back, to be recreated, to be who God made us to be, to be living in the way that God wants us to live. And the beautiful thing about this is that the image that Jesus is talking about is about the restorative and refreshing character of this rest. It is much like, I want you to imagine yourself outside one of the days of this week, you could pretty much pick any one because there is a heat index over 100 pretty much every day. Think of yourself as out in your yard Imagine that your grass has not been mowed in three weeks 
and you have an old gas lawnmower, and your job at high noon is to go out there and mow that grass. And so you are out there sweating and sweating and smelling the gas fumes and pulling and pulling on that cord, trying to get that thing to start and getting frustrated and angry and hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. Got that? That's miserable. And in the midst of the worst moment of that, all of the sudden, you hear a heavenly chorus of angels, and an angel comes down, and there is this flood of air conditioning that is surrounding you, and the angel holds out to you a five-gallon ice-cold container of your favorite flavor of Gatorade. That is what this is talking about, not literally, but that kind of refreshment that when you are hot and overwhelmed and you think there is no solution and you don't know what to do, all of the sudden there's this glorious refreshment that comes and cools you and reorients you and enables you to carry on because you know that this labor will not last forever. So this is rest for your soul. It is the rest for the core of your being that causes you to be aligned and on the right path, following your purpose. John Newton, that former slave trader who heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and was transformed by it, became an Anglican clergyman hymn writer and wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace, loved this passage that we have today. And he said this about it. The Greek word for rest expresses something more than rest or a mere relaxation from toil. It denotes refreshment. A person weary with long bearing a heavy burden will need not only to have it removed, but likewise, he needs food and refreshment to recover and to restore his spirits and to repair his wasted strength. Such is the rest of the gospel. It not only puts an end to our fruitless labor, but it affords a sweet, reviving cordial. There is not only peace, but joy in believing. And I think Newton is exactly right. The great English bishop J.C. Ryle also loved this passage, and he said this about it. Rest is a pleasant thing, and a thing that all seek after. The merchant, the banker, the tradesman, the doctor, the soldier, the lawyer, the farmer, all look forward to the day when they shall be able to rest. But how few can actually find rest in this world? How many pass their lives seeking it and never seem able to reach it? It seems very near sometimes, and they imagine it will soon be their own. But then some calamity happens, and they're as far off as ever. The whole world is full of restlessness, disappointment, weariness, and emptiness. The very faces of worldly men let out the secret. Their countenances give evidence that the Bible is true that they find no rest. But Jesus invites all who will come to him to rest. Come unto me, he says, and I will give you rest. He will give it, not sell it, as the Pharisees suppose. He gives it freely to every coming sinner, without money, without price. Rest from the guilt of sin. Rest from fear of the law. Rest from fear of hell. Rest from fear of the devil. Rest from fear of of death, rest from fear of the storm of affliction. 
He will comfort you with comfort that the world does not know, and he will enable you to hold your peace in the day of trouble. This is an invitation to rest that offers relief from stress and a lack of purpose and meaninglessness. But the beautiful thing is if you will look carefully at the passage as printed in your bulletin, is that Jesus offers us rest twice. And first he says, come unto me and I will give you rest. And this first rest is the rest of salvation. It is the rest of coming to Jesus and knowing that your sins are forgiven. It is that rest of casting off your burden of sin. Uh, sometime when you have time, go and read John Bunyan's great work, Pilgrim's Progress, and read that scene where Pilgrim finally comes to Christ, and he's been laboring on this long journey with this huge, unmanageable burden on his back, and he's finally able to throw it off, and as he looks at the cross and Jesus' sacrifice, he is set free forever from that burden and rejoices. But that is not all. You will also notice that Jesus says when you come to him and take his yoke upon you, that you will find rest for your soul. And the beautiful thing here is that there's an old-fashioned word embedded there in the Greek that we don't use very much anymore. It's a word that I associate with my great aunt because she used to say it. It's one of those old-fashioned words. It's the word eureka, not something that you probably hear shouted very much these days. But eureka is a great word that we should recover because it is an exclamation of great joy and excitement. And it comes from the Greek back in uh, the day when Archimedes, that Greek philosopher and scientist, was trying to study things about weight and metals and how things uh, could be measured. And one day when he was in the bath, he realized that the water displaced by his body in the bathtub equaled his weight, and he was overcome by this discovery and shouted, Eureka, and jumped up out of the tub and ran down the street without his clothes on. I don't commend that to you. But the point of this is that Jesus is saying that when we find the rest that he wants to give us, not just the rest of salvation, but the rest that comes from being in yoke with him, we are overjoyed. And the reason for that is what he's saying is that when we come into relationship with him, when we begin to live in his word and his presence, when we begin to live with his people, that there is joy that will overcome us and we will find rest from our burdens and our toil and our stress. The majority of people never find this because they're looking to the world. But what Jesus says is that it is in him and with him and in that yoke with him that we find that rest. Which brings us to the final question, what is this yoke and how is it related to rest? Now let me hasten to say, because we're in the South and pronunciations are sometimes a little funny, this is not an egg yoke, okay? This is a Y-O-K-E yoke a yoke that uh, every person in Jesus' time would have been intimately familiar with because they would have seen every day animals go by with yokes. And this kind of yoke 
is a wooden bar that is fashioned, that is fitted around the necks and over the shoulders of oxen or other beasts like that to enable them to pull a burden together. It lightens the load and enables them to be able to be purposeful and going together in a direction. And figuratively, this yoke uh, in Scripture also is something that unites two people to work together as one, moving in the same direction toward the same goal. The other place we find this word in Scripture is the idea of being unequally yoked, which we are counseled not to do. That means that the people of God, people who are seeking to follow Jesus, have an understanding of reality and purpose that means we are set to go in one direction, following Jesus. But people who don't know Jesus, who are not followers of Christ, have a different goal and a different direction. So we would not want to be yoked with them because we'd be pulling in opposite ways. So this yoke, Jesus describes as being easy. And that word that's translated easy means several things. It does mean easy in the sense of something that's not burdensome, but it also means good, something that's good that you are doing, something that's purposeful and meaningful. And it is also has connotations of kind, something that's being done to benefit you. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To be yoked with Jesus means that we surrender to him. This is not a very popular concept in our culture today because we live in a narcissistic age and we think it is all about me. Like that old country song, want to talk about me. And the problem with that is that Jesus is the one who made us and knows us and knows what will ultimately bring us joy, much more so than we know ourselves. And when we insist on our own way, we are chafing against that yoke, trying to get out of it, and we will get hurt, we will not get anywhere, and we will just be frustrated. We need to remember that as Christians, our view of the world is fundamentally different from those who are just out there in the culture who have no faith. We believe that we are not random accidents of the primal goo. We believe that the creator of the universe made us in his image, endowed us with gifts, made us, as the Westminster Catechism says, to know God and to enjoy him forever. Not to suffer or be in despair or just try to get rich, but to be in relationship with the creator of everything and to know joy. When Christians bind themselves together with wrong things, whether it be wrong ambitions or making our job, our yoke fellow, um, we set ourselves up for failure. Most of you, I hope at some point in your life, have had the opportunity to participate in one of those old Southern traditions, the three-legged race. The three-legged race means that you stand next to someone else, and as you are facing in the same direction, whoever is running this contest will uh, either tie your right leg and the other person's left leg together, or sometimes it's done as a sack race where your right leg and their left leg go into a sack and are tied up, and then you are told to move as fast as you can toward the goal. Now, if you handle this properly, it's really great fun. 
you are in complete sync with the other person. You spring up, jumping exactly at the same time. Your strides are the same, and you hop down that field and get there first. That usually doesn't happen, however. What normally happens is one person tries to go before the other one, or their strides are not the same, and usually before long you've lost your balance, and then you fall smack down face in the dirt. And the problem with so many of us is that we yoke ourselves to things besides Jesus. Jesus may be in the yoke, but we want to have something else in there too. And the result of that is like being put in a, a three-person, a three-legged race and having one person facing toward the goal and the other person facing the other way. And then the person says, go, and you pull in opposite directions. And the result of that is at the least frustration and at the worst, injury. It's not going to work out well, and you certainly are not going to reach your goal. But what Jesus is telling us is that as Christians, we should be longing for the presence of God to be headed toward righteousness and glory. And when we refuse to do that, we refuse to be bound to Jesus, and we miss out on the joy that God wants to give us. Jesus says his yoke is easy and that it is what is best for us. It is a reminder that Jesus, the one who wants to be our yoke fellow, is the one who gave his very life for us on the hard wood of the cross that all of us might come to him within the reach of his saving embrace. I love the way that this particular passage is translated in the message paraphrase of the Bible. Listen to these words. Are you tired, worn out, stressed, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you will recover your life. I will show you how to take a real rest. Walk along with me. Work with me. Watch how I do things. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't put anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you will learn to live in freedom and enjoy. My friends, it is a beautiful invitation, and if you find yourself today wondering whether Jesus invites you to come, the great good news is yes. He invites us all to come. He invites all to come and receive that rest, that refreshment, that recreation that will enable us to keep on. And he invites us to enter the yoke with him, to be in the service of a kingdom that will never end, a kingdom where there is joy and beauty and truth and goodness. I invite you to look in your leaflet at the words of the introit this morning, the old hymn, and I want to just use these words as a prayer as we close. Let us pray. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest, and in your weariness lay down your head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was so weary, worn, and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water, thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus, 
and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. O oh Lord, give us grace to get out of the yoke of this world and to come to you not dreaming of fitness, but coming to you just as we are, that we might enter your rest and take your yoke and find your joy. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.